This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast, where we explore the connections between STEM and storytelling. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a science lover, and the director of Northern Illinois University's STEM Read. And today I'm recording from a closet full of pillows during the pandemic. This episode's topic is e-empathy, or don't be a dick. Our guests are Chris Cluey, George Kouros, and Keisha Howard. During the COVID-19 crisis and quarantine, the internet has become more important than ever. We're using it to maintain connections, participate in distance learning, work from home, play games, and stream every single thing that has ever been uploaded. Technology has the power to bring people together and to share stories of compassion. But it can also amplify stupidity, misinformation, and hate speech. In this podcast, we're talking with three experts who will share their thoughts on reframing online interactions to foster empathy. First, Kristen Brentison and I interviewed George Kuros, author of The Innovator's Mindset, about creating a positive atmosphere for students in physical and virtual spaces. Next, I interview NFL kicker turned sci-fi author Chris Cluey about sports, esports, and empathy in gaming, and how all of that informed his first novel, Otaku. Finally, I'll talk to Keisha Howard, co-founder of Sugar Gamers, about representation in the video game industry and ways to support girls and women in all aspects of gaming and esports. Here's our interview with George Kuros. Note that we recorded this interview well before the pandemic, but George's ideas are more important than ever as distance learning continues to shape the future of school, teaching, and culture. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the innovator's mindset, what is it and why is it so important for not only today's teachers, but for today's students? It's based on Carol Dweck's work talking about fixing growth mindsets. And the way that I kind of make the jump between growth mindset, which I think is actually very crucial and it's not something that we would ignore, it's actually something I also embrace, is basically if you use the concept of a student learning math is that they believe they have the ability to actually learn and develop in math, whereas the innovator mindset would actually go beyond that and say the student would actually believe they have the ability to create something with the knowledge that they develop in math. So it's not just about consumption and developing knowledge, it's actually creating something with that knowledge. And I think with so much information out there, what kind of separating people is actually what they're doing with that information, what they're actually creating. And so I think this is kind of a mindset that I see as many people embracing outside of education as well. And I think that's kind of the whole purpose of this is that it's not just about doing well in school. It's about creating opportunities for yourself as you go further. Yeah, I think that's really important as we kind of look across the problems that we see in today's world and how do we use what we know to attack those and solve them? Yeah, and one of the concepts I talk about in the book, I reference uh, you and Macintosh, the notion of not only problem solvers, but problem finders. And I think that's something that we're trying to develop in our students is that how they actually are looking at the world and solving problems that they're passionate about. Like a lot of times in school, we're giving kids problems to solve that they could care less about. That it's more something the adult is passionate about or something that's in the curriculum. And and the way that you and Macintosh kind of distinguishes the two is, you know, basically if you have these kids who are developing problems that they actually want to solve, they're going to be so much better in the solutions that they're creating because they're actually passionate about the process. 
And so you're seeing people kind of embrace that mindset. It's not like, oh, I'm embracing the innovator's mindset, but it's basically what I've seen from their work. Like a young lady, Marie Copany uh, from Flint, Michigan, she started a Twitter account years ago to kind of bring awareness to what was happening in Flint with the water there. And I thought that was really interesting, but she's not just sharing her voice. She's actually doing a lot of things to like leverage solutions to actually not only bring attention, but to help people in the community already. And she's like 10 or 11 years old right now. And I think that's seeing people like that. We want that to become a norm where people are finding these issues around the world and saying like, hey, here's here's something we could actually do to make the world a better place. And I think that's kind of the whole focus. I love those stories. We had a student come to speak at a conference here back in January, and she was a high school student who had invented a way to teach other students how to use an EpiPen. And it was, you mm-hmm. know, built out of need. She uses an EpiPen. And so she created this teddy bear that could show people and demonstrate if they're actually using the EpiPen correctly. And it was such a personal problem, but such an innovative solution. So it's great to see these students who can solve these big problems. Yeah. And that, and that whole premise of what you just shared, that is the embodiment of the innovator's mindset. Obviously, there's probably something personal for her that she actually knew how to use an EpiPen, but she saw the problem was that other people around the world were not as comfortable using this. And so she created a solution. And I think that's that's kind of the whole premise of what we're trying to get our students to do. And I think that's why we're really trying to kind of know our students, develop their strengths and tap into that to actually help them create solutions, you know, for not only to make, you know, the world better, but their world better too. I think, you know, there's, there's some opportunity for kids to make, to, you know, create better lives for themselves as well through that process. So that leads me to how it seems like we're always creating a culture of don't with our students Mm -hmm. by telling them what they can't do. So how can we shift that mindset from what students can't do to these can do stories like the students we've just talked about? I get the opportunity to travel all over the world and travel to different schools and one thing, and I, it's like, it's like a bad little habit that I have, but I think it's kind of important. If I see no or don't on the wall, the first one I see, I just start counting. So if I go to new school and I see no or don't, I just start counting it like how many times. And a lot of times I'm hitting 10 before I even get to where I have to speak or getting to a classroom. And I think that we say little things like, you know, oh, we want our kids to change the world, but don't you dare bring water into the auditorium, right? <laughs> and I understand the need for rules and structure, and I totally understand that. But I think that kids are hearing that, and and it's not intentional. And I think that's a really important point. The reason why I bring it up is because it's not intentional. It's just something that we've always done in schools, and people don't really question it. Especially if you're in a school for a long time, you don't even notice the things that are on your walls. And I think that kind of being thoughtful of that is how do we kind of shift that language and still provide some structure, right? And uh, there's a gentleman named Dr. Martin Broken Lake, and he he really put it beautifully, and I thought it was really fascinating. He talked about, and I'm sure you, anyone listening to this that's ever been in education or you know walked into a school, you you see the signs that you know for the safety of our children, please visit the office before you enter, you know something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the way he brought it up is that immediately what you're actually insinuating by that statement is kids are not safe at the school which is not a really good environment to go work in, right? And so he said, why would you not have something similar say, upon arrival, we love to welcome all visitors. Please come say hi at the office. 
And it's just a little shift with kind of the same intent, but think about the feeling that you get when you actually walk into a school that says something like that versus like you're getting scolded before you even walk in. And I think that's a real shift. And um, a good friend of mine, Michelle Baldwin, and she referenced this and, and she said, people can't visualize the don't of an action. If I say don't bully, people tend to visualize bullying not the opposite of bullying, right? If I say, don't walk, you're probably visualizing walking. You're not visualizing sitting right away. And so a lot of times, you know, you hear about like anti-bullying or, you know, like cyberbullying and stuff like that. And of course we don't want kids bullying. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say, but it's actually a very low bar that we're setting for our kids is that if you're promoting an anti-bullying campaign, the best result you can get from that is kids won't be horrible to people. It's not a very high bar that we're setting as opposed to focusing more on leadership. You know, how we actually improve the lives of those around us, how we actually help people move forward in a positive way. That's something much more to aspire to. And I think a lot of times, you know, kids that are tending to bully, when we talk about anti-bullying, you're actually giving them really good ideas of how to bully other kids <laughs> as opposed to, kind of getting people to think about how they can actually make a positive difference. And I think that's one of the shifts that I, I'm really passionate about. Like, yeah, like I said earlier, of course, I don't want kids to bully, but I also want to inspire them to do something great, not just to keep them away from doing something bad, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes great sense. My daughter started kindergarten right after we went to your talk. And I was really pleased when I went into the school to see things about how to be a good friend and how to be a good, you know, member of her school and they really focus on things like that like friendship and I'm always like yes this will be good <laughs> yeah um, and I think that's the, that's the whole idea right like that's where you're seeing this and it, it is like I'm saying you know you're gonna have incidents of bullying you're gonna have incidents of a kid breaking you know doing something stupid and that that's part of it but you're often creating an environment where you're preparing for the minority of bad actions to basically dictate the entire culture. And I think that's something that we really need to shift, right? Is like you said, you know, walk into a school where we're saying like, hey, here's some great things you can do for other people. <laughs> that's the ideal. That's what we want to inspire in education. When I think that connects to one of the other quotes, I see now you have t-shirts of them. I'm like, oh, I want one mm -hmm. of these t-shirts that we need <laughs> to make the positives so loud that the negatives become almost impossible to hear. So where did this come from? And it's just so concisely said. I love it. <laughs> the quote was basically inspired by, I was at a speaking, or I was speaking to a group of high school students and I actually encouraged kids to tweet and to share their thoughts. But I just gave them the heads up that their teachers were looking. So, you know, don't share anything inappropriate. And I don't know if I'd say that again in that situation, but <laughs> like I kind of just the same thing that I just said before, as soon as I mentioned that some kids are like, yeah, I'm going to totally tweet inappropriate things. That's the first <laughs> thing I'm going to do. They heard tweet the most inappropriate yeah, thing you totally. can tweet. And <laughs> totally. And so I was in front of 2000 high school students and uh, had some kids tweet some pretty inappropriate things to me. I basically wanted to shut the whole thing down. I told a story about how students have had an impact on me. And how I measured it was by if I saw you outside of school, would I actually cross the street to come talk to you? Because that showed me that, you know, you made a significant impact on me. And I hope that I became the person today that you would cross the street to come talk to. And so this one student 
And I actually, it's fascinating. I still connect with him. He tweeted something really positive. Like I was about to shut everything down and he tweeted something positive. And then I acknowledged him for doing that. And all of a sudden the hashtag blows up with all these students tweeting really positive things about me. Now, the the, the person that tweeted, the, the few people that tweeted negative things, they were anonymous, they were trolls. And I think that, you know, probably the worst thing I could have done as an anonymous person having no one's like, who did that? Who did that? Which would be <laughs> not, not a really smart thing, but you know, it was terrifying. It was a terrifying moment. And so basically the students had tweeted so many positive and powerful things. The teachers had no clue the first three really negative tweets happened. And those kids actually never tweeted one thing the rest of the day, which told me something, right? They kind of mm-hmm. knew what everyone else was doing. That's where that, that notion came from. And so I share that quote quite a bit and I get pushed back and people are like, well, you don't think you're like, you should challenge things or we shouldn't talk about anything negative. I'm like, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm challenging here is that we often are so focused on negative things that we don't actually focus on what the possibilities are. And I, I do call out people and I, I'm pretty sure on that day, I probably said, you know, like there's probably people in this room that we are always negative. And I'm, and when I talk about that, I'm not talking about people that have, I pride myself on being someone who challenges people and tries to think about creating better solutions. But when I talk about that, I'm talking about people that have problems with every single solution that no matter what you try, they're going to go at. And we know there's people like that. And for me, for the success of the work that I do, and honestly, for my mental health, I don't pay attention to them. I do my best not to, and I think we can get caught up on so much negativity that, and I, like I said, I'm not talking about critical challenge. I think that's important. I'm talking about people that just want to see others fail. And so I, I think that's kind of where the quote generated from. I think that's why a lot of educators have really resonated with the quote is because we tend to be really scared of success in schools. Like if we see a teacher doing something really well, we're terrified that we're all going to have to do it. We're... <laughs> We should be saying like, hey, that teacher's doing something really well. Like, Maybe we should all be doing this. You know, if this helps kids, maybe we need to figure out a way how this becomes the norm. You just heard our interview with George Kuros, author of The Innovator's Mindset. His latest book is Innovate Inside the Box, which he wrote with Katie Novak. I love his quote about making the positives so loud that they drown out the negatives. I think that's something we can put into practice in our social media and our online interactions right now. To get a daily dose of George's positivity and proactive ideas, follow him on Twitter. His tweets will definitely help you start drowning out the negative in your feed. This is the Stem Read Podcast. During social distancing and school closures, STEM Read is releasing canned goods, non-perishable e-learning activities teachers can drop into lessons and parents can use to keep kids engaged. Go to stemread.com and look for the canned goods posts to find quick, fun, STEM-tastic activities aligned with teaching standards. We have a costume contest based on Quarantine the Loners by Lex Thomas. We have drop-in lessons on everything from STEM and poetry to connections between STEM and history. I've even recorded read-alouds of my Stuffed Bunny science books, The Toy and the Twister, The Toy and the Tide Pool, and The Toy and the Test Drive, all illustrated by Kevin Kroll. And we're rolling out more canned goods. Check out these fun, free resources on stemread.com today.
Up next is my interview with Chris Cluey. Chris was a professional football player in the NFL. He is an avid gamer, a strong advocate for gay rights, and he has written several essays and given TED Talks on esports and empathy. Chris is the author of the essay collection Beautifully Unique Sparkle Ponies. His first novel is Otaku, which was published by Tor Books. Otaku is a fun, fast-paced science fiction novel. It's set in the not-too-distant future. The real world has been ravaged by water wars and rising sea levels and divided up by large corporations and corrupt governments. Ashley Akashi lives in Ditchtown, the ruins of Miami, and spends most of her time in Infinite Game, where she is the reigning champion. Even though her feeds are watched by millions of people, she still faces racism and sexism from male players who are jealous of her success. Ash's life gets even more complicated when she stumbles upon a conspiracy to control and even kill players in real life. I talked to Chris at C2E2 in Chicago just a few weeks before the city went into lockdown. Here's my interview with Chris Cluey. What were you like as a student? I was a very smart and gifted student who generally tested in the 99th percentile but hated doing homework and paying attention to things I thought were boring so I read a lot during class Uh (laughs) because I knew I could just kind of get the answer whenever the teacher called on me. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that I was a good student. (laughs) I do not recommend that people follow my example. (laughs) But um, I mean I had fun in school. I studied a bunch of stuff and enjoyed some of it. But yeah for the most part it was... uh, I, I think I would be the poster child for make sure your child is engaged at school. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. So what did you read when you weren't engaged? Uh, mainly science fiction and fantasy. Yeah? So, yeah, a lot of anything I could get my hands on. It, mm-hmm. It's actually really funny. My um, senior year in high school, my English teacher, she had a big library of, like, Star Wars books and, and other uh, fantasy and science fiction stuff. And she made a deal with me because she noticed that I liked to read. She's like, if you get your vocab assignments exactly right every week, I will let you read during class. I'm like, sweet, going to nail this. <laughs> Got right every week. Yeah, <laughs> that's good class. motivation. <laughs> yep. What led you from there reading sci-fi to football mm-hmm. to writing this book? Describe that path for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, it's not a, it's not a normal <laughs> career path. <laughs> so growing up, I was always a huge nerd. I loved reading, loved playing video games, and if it was up to me, I would have stayed inside like every day, just being on the couch playing games, reading. My parents, however, had a rule. If it was bright outside, you had to be outside doing something. So they wanted to make sure that me and my brother were actually, you know, physically active and doing stuff, which I also recommend. Kids should be moving around. <laughs> and so I discovered I was also I also happen to be very very good at sports and I like being competitive I like playing sports and so it was kind of you know why should I have to give up one for the other and, then, and this was still kind of back this would be during the what like mid to late 80s where it was still you know kind of thought you either had to be a jock or you had to be a geek you know there's kind of that divide between mm-hmm. the two and to me that never really made much sense it's like I can do both of these things like I I, en- I enjoy playing sports but I also enjoy doing all all my nerdy hobbies and geeky hobbies and so as I moved forward, I never really felt like I had to pick between one or the other. It was, okay, I, I can continue being really, really good at sports. And I can also continue being a giant nerd. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no problem here. And so um, I kind of hoped making it to the NFL would show is that, you know, and, and I think a lot of people these days do, do kind of understand that you don't have to pick between the two. I think we really are breaking down that barrier. Like it, it is socially acceptable. You know, I mean, 
for example, this convention, right? Like how many thousands of people are here? How big is Comic-Con now in, in San Diego? Like the, the nerds are winning. That's great. <laughs> like it's okay to do both. Yeah, absolutely. And with the rise of eSports, mm-hmm. um, and you're a big gamer oh, yeah. as well, yeah. so still are. So how does that play into what you write about? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that I'm very competitive. Had I been born... 10 years later, 15 years later, I probably would have played esports instead, instead of traditional sports. Uh, I played a lot of Counter-Strike as a, as a teenager. So, But as we're seeing technology progress, as we're seeing the ability to translate, I don't like using the word real world because that implies that the online world isn't real. I guess like physical world and digital world might be better. But as we're able to translate those actions from the physical world into the digital world, you're starting to see that people are moving towards more of a one-to-one fidelity of, okay, if your body can do it you know, in the real world, then you can do it in the virtual world as well. And so, I mean, we're not even remotely close to that yet, but it's a threshold that we're moving towards. And esports, I've seen a lot of people comment like, oh, you just play computer games, you're not an athlete. I'm like, no, you, you actually are an athlete because you have, to, you have to maintain focus. You have to do very precise movements. Granted, they're with a small part of your body as opposed to like using your entire body for something like football. But for something like baseball, like hitting a baseball, it requires you to react within you know, the span of like a couple tenths of a second. In a League of Legends game, if you have a team fight at mid and it's 5v5 and all of a sudden things pop off, you have to react in the span of a couple tenths of a second. <laughs> like, it's still using the same parts of your brain where, okay, I, I have to see what's going on, I have to take in that information, I have to process it, and I have to do it very, very quickly. And the only way you do that is by practice, by repetition, by you know doing it over and over and over again. And there's no difference between physical sports and esports in that regard. And what about in terms of mindset and personality? Are there things that transfer well between esports and... Yeah, I, I think in both cases, it's almost exactly the same. You, you, you have to want to win, right? Like you, you have to be willing to put yourself through the, the practice because, I mean, I'm going to be perfectly honest, practice sucks. Like it's boring. <laughs> it's, you're, you're building the muscle memory. You're building the, the reflexes. And it just takes time. It takes repetition. And, and this is something I've tried to explain to my kids. And they're slowly, you know, starting to get it. But I know as a kid, I didn't get it. But, you know, I put in the time and eventually I got, I got to be very good at what I did. And so esports is the exact same thing. If you want to be good at something, you have to put in the time. And there's, there's no substitute. Like you can't wave a magic wand and be like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm a platinum level player. Player. Like, it's like, no, you got to put in the time. I loved your TED talk about esports and technology bringing about empathy. Oh, thank you. Can you kind of summarize that for our listeners who might not have heard it yet? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so that one was about uh, kind of augmented reality and virtual reality and how as we move more into a panopticon world, which <laughs> unfortunately we are, cameras are going to be everywhere. Cameras are getting smaller and better and, and we're able to put them in more and more places. And so the thing is with that technology, though, it doesn't just have to be used for surveillance or nefarious purposes. You can also use it to literally see from someone else's viewpoint. So in the TED Talk itself, I talked about in a football helmet, right now we have the technology to be able to put cameras on either side of of a player's head in a football helmet because you already have the shell there. You just need to create a housing and then a camera that can withstand impacts. The idea is that we we don't just have to use this stuff for surveillance, like I said, or for entertainment, you know, seeing the world from your favorite football player's viewpoint. We can also use it to, to create empathy. We can use it to show people what it's actually like 
to see from someone else's eyes, to experience what they're going through. Because as human beings, we're very visual learners. Like we, it's, you know, was it pictures worth a thousand words, right? There's, there's a reason that's a very popular saying is we tend, we tend to process information visually much more dramatically than we do, you know, if, if someone tells us or if, or if we read it. And so if we can use that to build more empathy within ourselves, if we make a conscious choice to build more empathy w within ourselves, then it leads to a better world for all of us. Because then we, we understand, hey, this is why it's bad to have people starving. Like, this is why it's bad to have people who don't have health care. Like, it, it's bad to not be able to pursue your life. <laughs> we should fix that. So how do you think that technology then will bring people together maybe in terms of esports or in terms of more of the augmented reality that mm -hmm. you've talked about? Is there one idea that you would like to see embraced? Well, so it's interesting because I think technology is already bringing us closer together. It's just unfortunately bringing a lot of negatives with it as well. I'm, for example, Facebook, right? Facebook is something where you can build a community on Facebook. The community you build could be your local neighborhood. Now, the bad part of Facebook is the community you build could be a bunch of neo-Nazis. <laughs> like there's no, there's no filter between those two on Facebook. So what we need to do is we need to understand that our technology is changing, our, our ways of communicating with each other are changing as, as we keep moving forward, but human nature generally has remained unchanged for the past, you know, 5,000 years or so. Like, we, we tend to form small communities, and then if we're not careful, we become insular, and we turn it into an us versus them. So we need to be consciously aware of that and understand, okay, if we're forming these communities, we also need to be aware that there's other communities out there. How do we work together instead of how do we fight each other? So I would say if the one thing I could change in technology would be finding a way to get people to work together and not be dicks to each other online. So let's talk about the book then. How did all of those ideas uh, find their way into your latest book? Otaku was originally written, I don't know how familiar your readers are with uh, Gamergate, which was something, or sorry, your listeners are familiar with Gamergate, which is something that happened, uh, God, what was it now, six years ago, seven years ago, something like that, um, where basically a bunch of very angry neckbeards got very angry at a couple women online and then just turned portions of the internet into a seething hellhole. Like, it, it was really bad. And so I wrote a, a piece, once I became aware of what was going on, I'm, I'm like, hey, like, knock it off. Like, the nerds already won. Like, what you're doing is not productive. This is, this is BS. Like, this, this is regressive thinking. It's not helping anything. You're being assholes. No one deserves to be treated like this. And so um, I wanted to write a story that incorporated my love for gaming, my, my love for science fiction and fantasy, my, my experiences as a professional athlete, you know, as someone who's put in the time to, to train and, and go through all that learning, along with the idea of, okay, here's this action story that a certain segment of humanity should love, right? The part that looks exactly like me, white, male, heteronormative. <laughs> but I wanted the protagonist to be someone that was not someone who looked like me because I've read plenty of stories with people who look like me. Like the, the default for video games for what, since they were created until right about maybe 2014 has been straight white male. That was the default character. That, that's who it was. So there is room for other stories. And I, I wanted to write one that 
it would be the story that they would want to read, but then they would get so upset because they would see themselves as the bad guys in it. Because, I mean, let's let's be honest, if you are acting like a regressive alt-right troll online, you are one of the bad guys. Like, you're, you're, not, the, you're not the hero of the story. <laughs> Everyone else is looking at you like, nope, you're the baddie. So <laughs> that, that was one of the driving motivations behind me writing it. And then, and then I was, as I was writing it, I was like, oh, you know, there's some other stuff I can throw in here, like some cool ideas on like haptic technology and kind of where I see the future of our country going, things like that. But yeah. The primary idea was I wanted to piss off a bunch of chuds online. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thinking about science, politics, climate change, it mm -hmm. seems like there's a lot in there. So mm -hmm. how do you research it? What do you want to say at the end of the day? Read books. Read, I mean, not just books. Read everywhere. Read as much as you can. Because one of, one of the defining characteristics of human beings is the fact that our memory is not limited to what's inside our head. Like, that's, that's what writing is. That's what... You know, it's the incorporated learning of everyone who has come before us. So the more you read, the more viewpoints you're exposed to, the more you learn about the world, the more you learn about everything around you that you cannot physically experience in your own lifetime. Like, I, I can't go back and live Galileo's life, but I can I can read about it <laughs> and I can learn a whole bunch real quick. Isaac Newton, I can't go back and live his life. Like, it, it would take me a long time to come up with his scientific breakthroughs, but I can read about it. I can learn about it. So take advantage of that. Go read, learn. Don't be afraid to ask why right? Be curious. You know, it's, it's okay to ask why and then, and then try to find out the answer. And sometimes the answer is, I don't know. And if that's the case, great. Keep, keep asking why. See if you can figure out that I don't know. And don't be a dick. Right. And don't be a dick. <laughs> that's really the main thing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You just heard my interview with Chris Cluey. His first novel, Otaku, is available now from Tor. It's a fun, fast-paced read with lots of cool ideas about haptic technology and the future of augmented and virtual reality. The book is filled with kick-ass female characters who push themselves day after day, encounter after encounter, to be the best. Like all dystopian novels, Chris Cluey's Otaku paints a picture of the future that we probably want to avoid. So, what are we doing in the present to change that narrative, to shut down hate speech and support women in online gaming, esports, and the video game industry at large? To answer that question, I talked with Keisha Howard, co-founder of Sugar Gamers, a community of gamers, geeks, nerds, techies, futurists, and others. They support new and diverse voices in gaming and tech. I connected with Keisha by Zoom during Shelter in Place. Here's our interview with Keisha Howard. Let's start with your story. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So I am, uh, my name is Keisha Howard. I am uh, the founder and CEO of a company called Sugar Gamers, which I started 11 years ago in response to the fact that I wanted to be a part of an organization that had gamers, but wasn't necessarily about competition had women as part of the organization, had people of color as part of the organization, and people met in real life to eliminate some of the weird behaviors that come from being anonymous and playing online. Real life in the Midwest. And none of those things existed. I didn't think that the concept for the organization was all of that unique or groundbreaking. And I looked for other, you know, organizations to belong to uh, at the time, it was 2009. Fast forward, and now we're here, and it's been very interesting, the type of people that I've been able to, to meet, the skills that we've been able to develop as like part of sharing 
our talents with one another and supporting each other. So we have like a sort of ingrained company culture in which you automatically become part of this very healthy, diverse and inclusive community that's around gaming and geek culture and technology so that we can like help each other get, you know, the careers that we want or learn new ideas because when you you go into certain structures you don't necessarily know the steps to have the career you want say you're 25 you already went to college for you know communications but you've always liked video games but you didn't come from an environment in which that was encouraged or supported because girls don't play video games or you know a career in video games is not seen as uh lucrative especially from people that are in marginalized communities because there's no representation. So parents are gonna be like, you know what? Go and pursue a career in gaming because they don't see it themselves. They don't see women, they don't see a representation of their kid in that industry. But as that is improved and people are more cognizant of those problems, then you get to like sort of see the underlying system that continues to perpetuate racial and uh, sort of gender um, disparities in some of these industries. So anyways, that's what Sugar Game is all about, <laughs> advocating, but in a very fun way, we create uh, things, you know, like community projects. We created a game called Project Violation, which is like this cyberpunk, solar punk, tabletop RPG, kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of fun and we are constantly sort of in communication so we can figure out what's next and, you know, solve problems. Yeah, that's awesome. And what are some of the programs that you do within the community? I know that you've talked in the past about some of the things that you're doing to encourage young girls in gaming. Well, I have a a sort of class that I've taught at Chicago Public Schools called Intro to Futurism, where I use like sort of the Socratic method, because what a lot of us don't realize is that kids actually have a better grasp and understanding of a lot of the technology that is already being used, but they don't necessarily have the vocabulary or the way to frame what it is that they're participating in and consuming in such a way that they, they understand that it's relevant and important, right? So, you know, I'll say, like, what kind of game is Pokemon Go, right? And someone will raise their hand and be like, a mobile game. I'm like, sure. What else you got? They'll be like, a Nintendo game. Sure. Someone will finally say, an AR game. I'm like, okay, what's AR? And you would be shocked that a lot of kids hear words, but don't really examine what they mean, where they come from, or deconstruct what it it all is, so they can see where they fit into it. So I, I like to deconstruct the spaces where we're consuming a lot, but not understanding how we are playing a part and uh, some of these narratives. So a lot of kids that think that they're not into tech actually end up being very, very much in a tech when they understand there's a lot of different components that fit together. Anyways, that's what Intro to Futurism is. And uh, I also sort of expose not just kids, but just people who aren't necessarily in this space to new concepts, new hardware, new ideas. Like, One of my favorite things to do is I go around explaining what digital humans are. And you see this in examples like Deepfakes or Lil Michaela, which you can barely discern that you're looking at something that has been artificially created. And with everyone being so immersed in social media and just scrolling, 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 it's so easy to consume messaging that has been completely 
superficially, artificially, you know, just created that can be of major influence. Like young women, especially who want to be models, for example, like Instagram models. I'm like, let me show you an Instagram model that was created by a man that is getting all the influencer deals. <laughs> it's a major influencer. It's like you can be created and that technology is becoming easier, cheaper, and more accessible by the day. So it's like, not only can you be a model, but you can make one and understand like the influence that an aesthetic can have. Yeah, that's great. As we were talking before, Chris Cluey's new book was written partially as a response to Gamergate. So can you give us some background on Gamergate and uh, what it meant to the gaming community and where we've gone since then? From my understanding, uh, I mean, I've been Gamergated before, which was really weird. And in 2011, about 2000, uh, around about that year, there were a, a few sort of very um, outspoken women who identified some of the ways that uh, female tropes were used in video games. Like one of the women, her name is Anita Sarkeesian, and she made a video about how like female characters in video games are constantly used as just a plot device for the male characters. So they're usually like killed off, they have no character development, they have no backstory, they're not strong in most of the games that we're engaging with. And that's problematic. The response to that and the response to more women wanting to play bigger roles and have more influence and have more uh, representation in the space was that you know, these women did not have the same skill set or the same uh, strengths or the same whatever as the men who had already been in the industry. And they're just using their sexuality to create issues and, and get jobs easier than men who are more experienced and more capable. Mm -hmm. what, what happened was like there was a few, you know, sort of leads to the Gamergate uh, initiatives and from my understanding, it seems like they created a lot of bots on for Twitter to harass, dox, um, and just, you know, make uh, certain women's lives a living hell. As a person from the south side of Chicago, like I am from the hood where people get shot. So when like I got harassed on the internet, I'm just like, y'all gonna do something for real? Come on. <laughs> like, so it, it didn't necessarily impact me the same way emotionally, but if you've developed a whole, you know, identity and career online, and then your online sort of livelihood is compromised, and it becomes, you know, um, stressful, and even in some cases, dangerous. Uh, there were women who feared for their lives, whose privacy was completely exposed, and it, it really um, it impacted them uh, mentally. And, and it was a terrible experience for, for a lot of people. Like I said, for me, um, just growing up the way I did, it's easy for me to turn Twitter off because I can still maintain an identity in an analog fashion. I never sort of hinged all of the things that I do on my online profiles. So I think that helped a little bit. But like they, uh, you know, definitely called me names, um, said I was a fake girl gamer, whatever that means, because everyone is a gamer. If you're playing Candy Crush on your phone, you're a gamer. You can't be a fake gamer. It's kind of like being like a fake moviegoer 
Like, oh man, you watch this movie, that means that you're not a real movie watcher. Like, it doesn't make sense. And and then basically, it's a lot of people who are trying to maintain this gatekeeping mentality on what being a gamer is. And, you know, you can't be in the kingdom of the gamers if you don't, you know, meet certain criteria. That has since kind of dissipated. And now as more people become exposed to what video gaming really is and the intellectual merits of it and how it can go beyond esports and competition and pitting people against each other, like who's the best, but you can actually have a very engaging narrative experience uh, playing games. You can do, you can learn, you can sort of improve your critical thinking, your creative thinking by playing games. There's so much more to it that supersedes that incident of Gamergate. It was an important time, but gaming has always been bigger than that. And now that we're living during a pandemic, we're seeing that even more than ever. Right. Absolutely. So that leads into my next question. How do you think the pandemic is impacting gaming and esports and e-learning? I know my daughters, uh, they're doing ABC Mouse. They're doing all these different games and their teachers are just like, uh, you don't have math books at home, so play this uh, game where a pelican eats fish and then you make a graph, you know? So <laughs> so definitely I see it changing in education, but w- what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's always been there, but because so many of us have only looked at the gaming industry as a source of entertainment, it's a treat. It's something that you do for fun. We, we haven't really did a deep dive on how important it is. The World Health Organization just last year was talking about how like gaming could lead to addictive behaviors and screen time could be, you know, bad for your health or bad for your children. And now the same organization is saying how games are making this situation that we're living in a much safer environment because it keeps us inside, but it keeps us engaged. And it allows us to engage in such a way that we're still learning. We're still, you know, if you want to take a walk, you can play Zelda Breath of the Wild. If you, you know, want to learn critical thinking or creative thinking, you can play puzzle games. You can do so many types of things that stimulate you mentally and intellectually with games that the gaming industry is seeing a, a huge boom. Traditional sports can't be played, social distancing and so on and so forth. So what sport do you have now? Esports, because you can play that at home. If you have a good internet connection and a gaming PC, you can now be what is going to be the next athlete that we can actually root for and and talk about because we, we can't talk about basketball or football or anything like that for the foreseeable future for at least, you know, probably until next year. So what's the next best thing that we can do now that we have to social distance? That next best thing is video games. It is VR. It is these digital virtual worlds that we have to explore and engage with and and connect with others with. It's more important than ever. Absolutely. The other thing that is explored in the book is this idea of one-to-one fidelity between the player and their avatar in the game. What do you see as the future of AR and VR? Where are we going with it? Is that something that you would like to see or is that something that fundamentally changes what gaming can be in terms of accessibility? Ah, man, it's such a... That's such a provocative question because I, I, I have conflict here. I definitely believe in this healthier environment in which we are human beings and we 
don't fight the human experience so harshly because the human experience allows us to embrace nature. It allows us to embrace our nature and our, you know, human limitations. When we go beyond our humanity, uh, we end up doing things that destroy ourselves and destroy things around us. Um, as we develop more in technology, as things become more sort of accessible, uh, you have to think about how it's made and what it takes to make it and what that cost is. When plastic, for example, first became, you know, a very important part of our culture, we didn't think anything of it like, oh man, it keeps food fresh, it's convenient, it's cheap, this is great, right? And now we have oceans that are like filled with plastics and there's a lot of problems and pollution that are, that this technology that this convenience has created. There's ups and, you know, downsides of that. So like for me personally, I definitely want to see how far we can go and push the envelope as it pertains to AR and VR and like jack myself into the matrix, so to speak, and learn Kung Fu, you know, and, and these speculative fictions in which AR and VR now is the way we live. The world is a dismal place. Look at the Matrix, dystopic. Look at Ready Player One. People are living in stacked trailer homes. It is not like a pleasant place to be. And I don't know if I want to trade in a a beautiful life, a beautiful earth for a virtual world. I, I want to see it happen from curiosity, from the fact that I work in this space, from the fact that like now like your imagination is unlocked and you can pretty much do anything in virtual worlds. But like, what would be the cost of that? What's the, what's the sacrifice you make for that sort of accessibility? So I don't know what that is. Like looking at digital humans is equal parts terrifying and fascinating. It's like, wow, we have moved beyond the uncanny valley where we can create things that are indiscernible from like real life that's terrifying but it's also wow this can do a world of of things you know like now you know we don't need as much people power but not needing real people where does that leave real people so there are there are like good parts about it there are bad parts about it and i'm constantly thinking about those things especially since i've been very fascinated by a genre of speculative fiction called solar punk in which we think about our future in not a dystopic manner. So what does that mean to live in harmony with the earth and have more egalitarian environments for our future? Because most of the futures that we have been imagining and we have been um, sort of putting on a pedestal, you know, like the Blade Runners and the Matrixes and the Equilibriums and so on and so forth, quite dystopic. I don't want to live in those futures, even though those futures look badass and everyone's doing super cool things. <laughs> Seems pretty depressing for an average individual. I, you know, I want to see it, but I kind of am afraid of it too. <laughs> <laughs> right. What advice do you have for gamers or for teachers? How can we push back that dystopian future that might be, (laughs) that hopefully won't come to pass? How do we change the culture or keep pushing it in the right direction? Well, two things. First, I think that teachers and parents, especially like educators in general, need to understand something very fundamental about games. Games are educational, period. They don't have to be an educational game 
in order for it to be framed in an educational format. Let's take the games that most educators think of when it comes to entertainment, like a first-person shooter, like a Fortnite, Call of Duty, uh, Halo, something like that. They're like, oh, you know, what are the intellectual merits of this game? And a lot of educators don't realize that there's a line of questioning that they can present to their, their students. What was used to make these characters? Like, was it Unreal? Was it Unity? Was it Autodesk? What software is used? Who are the people that make these games? What, what does it take? When uh, people complete these games, there are thousands or hundreds of individuals that work on a title. People are getting paid lots of money to develop games, but we don't teach how these industries are ran. Deconstructing games in and of itself is a very educational process. Again, there's so many ways to make any game sort of educational by framing the questions around it, right? So that's like one of the first things. And then the second thing is a lot of us, we're always talking about like innovation and, and new ideas, but really as a society, we don't support that. We look at what's been previously successful and what makes money and we just make incremental improvements on that, which is why we have so many dystopic movies and so much dystopic subject matter because it's been popular. It's made money. People know about it. So we're not necessarily experimenting with other ways that we can look at the future and look at how games can impact it. So to really find and highlight and support people that actually have fresh approaches innovative ideas and put those narratives, put those individuals so we can see them and be inspired by them. And then like sort of follow that and shift our perspectives. It's going to be really important because right now we choose between innovation that can really usher in like a new way, a healthier way of, of, of thinking for all of us and what makes money. And I get it. I get what makes money. It's very important. We all want it. We all want to be successful, but it doesn't necessarily equal a positive and uh, sort of progressive result. So those would be my two things. So for people who want to support girls and women in gaming, what's your advice in terms of changing the culture or continuing to foster a more positive culture? Well, I mean, I think foundationally, we need to be very cognizant of how we socialize young girls, socialize young women. So there's a, still a lack of representation. No one's having that conversation. They're not seeing their favorite celebrities play games or advocate for games. They're not seeing, you know, Rihanna or um, Taylor Swift, whoever is the popular person. We're still pushing forward sexuality, youth, entertainment as like the way a young girl can be successful. I can't think of a bunch of women that are super iconic tech celebrities and, and figureheads that have like ushered in a new way that we all sort of in, engage with technology. We need to have a representative in that space that's not super political and like not about education. It's, a, it's about young kids want attention and uh, money and uh, success in the way that we push it as, as being compelling. In my 11 years of working in the video game industry, I don't actually know any women that own a 
AAA video game studio. I, and I'm pretty sure there's still a lot of industries like that where we just don't have that person to look at and be like, that's the that's the woman. Hey, you, you should check out this woman if you like video games. She's successful and awesome and having a good time with her career. Like we don't have that in technology really. And it's sad. Yeah. Absolutely. I love what you're doing. <laughs> and I think that uh, you're a great advocate for these things. So I'm happy to share your story and hopefully people look up to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is super hard though. Like it's, I did not anticipate it taking so much time, money and resources. And, you know, I want to quit all the time, but then I realized that there would be so many people I would like kind of let down because I'll meet a young girl and she's like, I don't know any adults that play video games like you do. And I'm just like, oh, wow, that's an important conversation because it validates kids and what they're interested in. And I didn't realize just being myself and representing that you can be this and like video games and be a, a video game dork or tech dork can really pull somebody out of depression, you know, make someone feel less isolated, uh, motivate them to, to be more themselves. So, I mean, when I was a teenager, I didn't have that. So it didn't occur to me that I can even work in video games until I was about 26 years old, you know, 11 years later, here we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, well, thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate talking to you today. Well, thank you for talking to me. And now i got to read Otaku. Uh, that sounds very <laughs> important and hardcore, you know. Uh, so I'm really, from what you've told me about it, it seems like there's some compelling elements in it. So next book to read during the pandemic. I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you just heard my interview with Keisha Howard. Keisha has so much energy and is doing amazing work to support her online community of geeks and gamers. She's also supporting the next generation of female gamers in real life as a teacher and mentor. What I loved about the interviews with Keisha, Chris, and George is that they're all positive and proactive people who are working to make the world a better place. They're sharing stories, ideas, and experiences that help us see, hear, and understand our fellow humans. Hopefully all of our hardworking STEM professionals will science us out of this pandemic. Until then, listen to scientists, wear masks, and stay safe. And let's exercise some e-empathy and work to make our online spaces and interactions healthy, productive, and positive. We're all in this together. In the immortal words of Chris Cluey, don't be a dick. If you enjoy conversations about the connections between STEM and storytelling, you would have loved the Future Telling Science Plus Fiction Conference we were planning to host for writers and STEM experts this summer. Unfortunately, like the rest of the summer, it has been canceled by COVID. But there is good news. We're working on converting the conference to a series of online webinars. How will the virus impact the future of science and science fiction publishing? What pressing non-COVID science questions are knocking around in your head as you try to write your own quarantine novel. We'll get those questions answered at the Future Telling webinar series. More details and registration will be available soon at stemread.com. The Stemread podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the Stemread podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future 
our focus. If you like what you hear, leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and stay safe.